0: from the world? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. nine. not have a Bible, there's a black Bible in the pew in front of you, chapter 9, starting in verse 36. Before we read this, I want you to try a little thought experiment. This is one of a few thought experiments that we are going to consider today. Imagine a brother in Christ serving as a missionary in central Pakistan whose main work revolves around an orphanage in a village there. This missionary is there by the kind support of brothers and sisters here in America. And as he raises support for the work that he's doing there in Pakistan, he has to do things that all missionaries do, send out letters of support. He tells what's going on in the life of the village. Maybe he tells of missionary activities, evangelistic efforts, things that are going on in the life of the orphanage. Then he signs off with his name. And then at the end, after the signature, he quotes Mark 9, 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now how would you interpret that verse in the way that this missionary has used it in this context? I imagine you might read it and think it to mean something like If you care for children, it's like you're receiving Jesus. Loving children is the same thing as loving Jesus. That's powerful. But is it accurate? When Jesus spoke the words from Mark chapter 9, verse 37, did he mean what the missionary means when he quotes Jesus' words from Mark chapter 9, verse 37? So join me now in reading verses 37 through 41. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And we'll read verse 42. For whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, be with us now. Be with us through your word and by the power of your spirit. Give us the ability to pay attention and to think and to receive your word with all of our faculties. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Now if you read verse 37 of today's text one way, okay, it might sound like anyone who loves and cares for children will go to heaven. Right? I mean, look at verse 37. It says, whoever receives this child, and then at the end of it, it says, receives me. And if you receive Jesus, you don't just receive Jesus, you, send, you receive the one who sent Jesus, which is the Father. It sounds very much like salvation. The rest of the Bible, however, seems to teach us that we're not saved by works, even really, really good works, like ministering and caring for and loving children. So what are we to do here? Well, we should probably stop and make sure that this verse means what we think it means, but before we throw out what all the rest of the Bible says about how salvation works. I think in order to understand what Jesus is teaching us in today's text, we need to find the answers to at least three questions. So my note takers, everyone who loves the points, who got their notebook out, Your points are going to be in the forms of questions today, Katie. Question number one. What does Jesus mean by one such child? What does Jesus mean by one such child? Question number two. What does Jesus mean by receive? Then finally, question number three. What does Jesus mean by in my name? Question number one. What does Jesus mean by one such child? Now, this is the question that's going to require the most heavy lifting this morning. But I think it's going to be worth it. If you want to understand a text, you have to read it in its context. Now, today's text is part of a larger chunk of text that we've already preached through, right? The disciples have been on the road with Jesus, and he's telling them about his coming, suffering, and death. And rather than considering their Savior suffering and death, they start thinking about themselves. Who's the greatest? Who's going to be first? And Jesus goes, you guys totally misunderstand what it means to be great. You guys totally misunderstand how you go about achieving greatness. And then in the house, as he's giving this lesson, he grabs one of the kids that are running around. Maybe it's even Peter's child. And he grabs the kid, he puts it in his lap, holds it in his arm, and he says, if you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be a servant of all. Then he says, whoever receives one such child receives me. So it's clear here that the child is kind of involved with the rest of what's going on in the story, these themes of greatness and service. And he's connected somehow to the disciples and their desire to be great and their lack of a desire to serve. Now the question that we need to ask is this, should we understand Jesus literally to be referring to children Or should we understand him to be referring to children metaphorically? That is, should we understand Jesus to be saying this? You need to receive, which is welcome, care for, bless, etc. You need to receive children who are under the age of 13 or 18, whatever it happens to be in your society. Or is Jesus saying that we need to receive people who are like children? Is Jesus speaking literally, or is he using this child as kind of a a one-word parable? Is he speaking metaphorically? Well, I think the answer is the latter, brothers and sisters. Now, in my first draft of this sermon, I had about a good ten minutes of exegesis, just working through the text, just right here in these few verses in Mark, to try to prove my point that this is what Jesus meant here. And then I did a sermon preview. Some of you may know in the life of this church, uh, every week that I preach, I try to find at least one member of this church to go over my sermon with before I preach it. I ask for feedback and advice. I ask them to tell me, hey, that was helpful, or I didn't understand that, or I think that's totally wrong, and I believe that the members of this church can actually help me do better in my preaching. Well, this week I did sermon preview with two members of the church, and as I was going through those 10 minutes of exegesis, I could just feel their eyes glazing over I could just, we could feel the oxygen being sucked out of the room, and I was loving every last second of it, because I could tell that we were losing them, and these are people who love that sort of stuff. I knew that I had to cut some of that out. So, for now, let me just give you two little tidbits from this text that I think should prove the point. If you don't find them convincing, find me or one of the elders after church to talk about it, and we'll try to help you. First, there are three whoever clauses What I mean by whoever clauses, I mean that there's a statement that begins with the word whoever. You'll see them in verses 37, in verse 41, and in verse 42. If you have a pen or a pencil with you this morning and you're using your Bible and not the Pew Bible, you should just go ahead and underline those whoever's or circle them, right? Because those words are important. These whoever clauses show us that all of these verses are not distinct teachings from Jesus. Jesus is actually teaching the same thing. He's on the same theme, the same subject. In verse 41, the whoever clause reads like this. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose the reward. So the you in this clause, whoever gives you a cup of water, it's not referring to you, it's not referring to Grant or Miss Teresa or Miss Sandra, it's referring to the disciples who Jesus was talking to at this time. The disciples are the subject of the receiving of the water, not a child. Therefore, it makes sense that the one such child from verse 37 also refers to a disciple. Whoever receives one such child, that is a disciple, a believer in my name. There's a couple other things we could do to see that, but I think I might have lost some of you there. So there's another place we can look. It's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles open. Matthew, it's right before the book of Mark. You can get there pretty easily. Chapter 10, verse 40. This is a similar account of what we're reading today in verse 37. It's not a parallel account, but Jesus is teaching the same sort of thing. And here he says, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. You can go back to Mark now. Do you see that? Do you see that same language being employed as verse 37? Whoever receives one such child in Mark, whoever receives you in Matthew. And whoever receives you, receives me, receives the Father. It's the same language. Except for in Matthew, Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. He's merely speaking to the disciples. But here, Jesus has a parable going. So as he's continuing in this parable, he's referring to the disciples as children, because he wants them to be like children. So from looking at this text and other texts, we see that Jesus is not speaking literally about children. He's speaking about his disciples. And he's been telling his disciples, I want you to be servants of all. And what greater image of of a servant is there than a child? Right? Right? What greater image is there of being last than a child? Now, we don't really see that as clearly in our culture because we kind of have child worship. And now it's kind of crossed over into the opposite of that. And we might get back to the point where this made more sense to us. But, you know, children get to always eat first. And they're the most valued and most special and most pampered in any given family. But in the ancient world, that was not so. In the ancient world, that was not so. Contrary to the disciples... Children, although, yes, they do tend to be prideful in some sense, you know, I'm the king of the hill, they have no real delusions of grandeur, right? They're also, historically speaking, the least in any given society. They don't contribute much. Their opinion isn't valued. They can't go to war. They can't produce offspring. They require a lot of work, and they don't give much back in return, at least until they get older. And even then, it's only maybe, you know what I'm saying? And they're literally the servants of everyone. One of the reasons I love having kids is because I don't have to get off the couch as often, you know? patience. go get daddy a glass of water. Oh, thank you so much. I don't have to get up. Right? Big brothers tell little brothers what to do. Teachers tell their kids where to go, what to do, when they can use the bathroom. Children are servants to most older children and most adults in their spheres. Olivia's nodding her head, yes. She's thinking, I'm almost out of that phase of my life. Not quite. Jesus is saying here, you must be like this child. He doesn't say it super explicitly here in Mark, but in Matthew's version of this exact same account, he says this. And calling to him a child, he put them in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we have the answer to question one. Note takers, the answer to question number one is, what does one such child mean? It's parabolically, metaphorically, we're uh, talking about disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ. All right. Relax, breathe, shake it out, shake it out. Point number two is going to be a little bit easier on us. Question number two, what does it mean to receive a child? That is, what does it mean to receive a disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm going to give it to you quick and easy. It means exactly what you might think that it means. It means to welcome, to not push away, that sort of thing. In Luke 9, we kind of get a picture of the opposite of what it looks like to receive. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends the disciples out before him to prepare a place for him. Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your town. Will you receive me? He sends the disciples, and this is what we see. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem, where he would die. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Which means these Samaritans, these non-Jews, they saw that he was going towards Jerusalem to go be with God and God's people at the temple. And they rejected him. He said, no thanks. We don't want you and the message that you're bringing here with us. They didn't welcome the disciples. Now notice something. Just a cool little thing to see from the text here. Jesus was not with the disciples, and the text says the people did not receive him. So, to receive one such child in verse 37 simply means to welcome a disciple, to open your home to him, to receive him. Practically speaking, however, welcoming could look different in different societies and different cultures. In the book of Luke, we saw that welcoming would have looked like giving them a bed, some food to eat, somewhere to stay for the night. We see another example of what it looks like to welcome in verse 41. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, giving a cup of water here is just a picture of welcoming that Jesus gives the disciples. Again, Jesus Guys, it's not literally referring to a glass of water. It's not like you give a disciple a glass of water and boom, you're in with Jesus, right? It's not that easy. He's speaking metaphorically here. Giving a glass of water represents welcoming. But that may not make sense to you, so again, enter into another little thought experiment. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You've been sent out on a mission. You're going to go take the gospel to those who don't have the gospel, and so you're going from one village to the next. You set out early in the morning, 4.30, to escape the sun. And you're walking, in 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, the sun's out, and it's coming down. 9.30, it's coming down hard. 10 o'clock, it's raining down on you. And noonday, blasts you. And around 1 o'clock p.m., you arrive at the next village. You're hungry. You're hot. You're thirsty. One of the first things you're going to try to find is water. You know, this is 2,000 years ago. You don't have your Yeti cup, the ice won't still be fresh. When you get to the village, one of the first things that you're going to seek out is water. And if someone refuses to give you water, it's obvious that they're rejecting you. They're not showing you the hospitality that shows that they receive you and receive your message. But someone wouldn't merely give you water. That's kind of just a, a little, a lesser to greater sort of thing. What they would do is they would invite you into their home, they'd offer you some water, they'd give you something to wash your feet with, or maybe if they're wealthier, or have one of their slaves wash your feet. Right? They'd invite you to dine with them at the big meal of the day at night and you'd fill up and then you'd probably sit around and talk religion and politics with them and then you'd sleep there that night and then the next morning they'd probably see you out to the road. That's ancient Near Eastern hospitality. That's what it looks like to receive. And Jesus says that whoever receives or welcomes the disciples in this way will by no means lose their reward. In verse 37, he says, to receive one such child, to receive a disciple in this way, is to receive Jesus himself. but it's still possible for us to really, really, really misunderstand this text. And it's important that we don't do that, because if we do, a whole bunch of things that we believe about salvation and sin and how all that works, it's going to be totally messed up. If a group of pagans receives a group of disciples, have they received Jesus? Is there some eternal reward for them? Here's an opportunity for another thought experiment. A missionary in a Muslim land travels into a predominantly Muslim village, and upon arrival, he speaks with one of the men of the village. The Muslim man is kind to the missionary. He invites him in, into his home, and he offers him water and food. He allows him to bathe and clean himself. He gives him some figs to eat. In the evening, the Muslim man and the Christian missionary dine together, perhaps even with the Muslim man's family. Most likely not. The women would probably be in another room with their heads covered, not eating with the men. And later in the evening, there are a few hours of discussion. The Muslim man kindly invites the Christian man to share what he believes about God and sin and salvation. And so the Christian missionary does. And this is actually surprisingly common. In places where, that are predominantly Muslim but secularly so, Muslims engage with Christians about their faith quite often. So the Muslim man hears this Christian missionary's gospel message and then they discuss it all into the late hours of the evening. At the end of the night, the Muslim man kindly, politely, but adamantly rejects the missionary's message, sees him off to bed. The next morning, the missionary wakes up. He prepares to hit the road again. The Muslim man even packs him a little to-go bag with snacks and little tidbits for his travels. Does this Muslim man receive his reward? is this the kind of welcoming that Jesus has in mind when he says, if you welcome one of my disciples? I think the answer is no. I don't think that what the Muslim man from our scenario here today, I don't think that what he did is the same thing as what Jesus means when he talks about welcoming a disciple. And that's why we need to answer question number three. Question number three, what does Jesus mean when he says, in my name? In my name. Because you see that in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We often pray in the name of Jesus, right? That's how we end our prayers, hopefully. When I was a missionary in Peru, there was a pastor that I was praying with one time, and I just ended the prayer with an amen, and he told me to go back because it didn't count. I had to say, in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, good. And when we, when we say, in the name of Jesus, what we mean is, not like there's some special talismanic power in these five letters, or the sound of his name. What we're doing is we're saying that we're praying under the authority of, or in recognition of the lordship of, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. That's not exactly what Jesus means here when he says, in the name of Jesus. It might seem like it if you read verse 38. Look at verse 38 for a second. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. I think here, the person who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus is casting out demons claiming to be representing Jesus. John is talking about a guy who was casting out demons, but this guy was not part of the official 12, right? He wasn't part of like the super elite special forces disciples, the ones that were handpicked by Jesus, the ones that were sticking it out with him on every leg of the journey. And John says, after after Jesus talks about receiving these disciples, John says, well, actually, it's funny that you say that, because there were some people who were casting out demons in your name, and we didn't receive him. We rejected him. We told him he wasn't one of us. And then Jesus responds in verse 39 by saying, don't stop him. Right? This guy is going around doing things in my name. And if nothing else, someone who claims to be, us for, who claims to be for us one minute can't so easily be against us the next minute. And then he says this, which I think gives us the answer to question number three. For anyone who gives you a glass of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The receiving is not receiving to be nice. The receiving, the giving a glass of water is receiving because you belong to Jesus Christ. So I think in this text, in my name means Because you belong to me. I think that when Jesus says receiving someone in the name of Christ, he's talking about an act of obedience that is coming out of belief in Jesus. This is a deed of faith. A missionary or a disciple shows up to your village, and when you receive them, by your actions you're saying, I believe that you are a a representative of the Lord Jesus. I believe that he has sent you and that you are one with him. And because I believe that, I welcome you in his name. And that's why Jesus says that to receive one such child is to receive him. Because receiving is an act of obedience grounded in faith. And if you're receiving Jesus, you're also receiving the Father. Look, in John 20, 21, it reads this. As the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. So you see this chain of mission The Father sends the Son into the world to accomplish salvation. And then the Son sends the disciples into the world to proclaim the gospel of salvation. So to receive a disciple is to receive the one who sent the disciple, Jesus. And to receive Jesus is to receive the one who sent Jesus, the Father. Now if we read verse 37 again, it might make a little more sense, right? I don't use Amplified Bibles often. I don't have anything against them. I've just never even thought about using them. Uh, Maybe if I looked into it more, I would have something against them. Give me time to study it. But one of the things that can be helpful is you come across words or phrases that you don't understand or you don't really know how they're being used. And like the Bible, the Amplified Bible will have a parentheses next to the word with kind of like synonyms or similar thoughts and ideas to help you understand. So, I kind of made my own little amplified Bible version of verse 37. Whoever receives, parentheses, welcomes, serves, cares for, provides for, gives shelter to, trusts, in parentheses, one such child, parentheses, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a child of God, a believer, a missionary, an apostle, in parentheses, in my name, parentheses, in faith that Jesus has sent them under his authority, in parentheses, receives me. Parentheses. Demonstrates his faith through obedience. In parentheses. And whoever receives me, receives not me only, but him who sent me. Now let's go back to the illustration earlier. The illustration of the Muslim man. This Muslim man was receiving the disciples, but he was receiving them out of cultural custom. In Islamic cultures, receiving people with hospitality is a matter of honor. And it's actually a matter of pride, right? You're you're serving other people, but really it's self-serving. It's the thing to do. But the believer receives and welcomes apostles, missionaries, disciples, people who have been sent out by Christ in faith. And that's why it's different. Only those who are receiving disciples in faith will inherit their reward. Only those who receive disciples in faith are also receiving Jesus and the Father. I think that we have a good grasp on what's going on here. So now let's, let's look at some application. right? We just did a, a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of trying to figure out what the text means, and that's important. Because if we don't understand what the text means, and then we try to apply it, we are going to apply it in all of the wrong ways. Think about the missionary from the opening from the introduction of the sermon. So, if you want to have like a little subheader for application points, here's where you could do it. The first and most obvious application from a right understanding of this text is that we should not use it to teach people that they will be blessed for taking care of children. We should not use it to teach people that they will be blessed for taking care of children. Giving a glass of water or a blanket, or an education, a backpack, or whatever to a child, will not earn you a reward if you are not in Christ. Now there are about a thousand ways from Scripture that we should reason, that we could reason to argue that we should take care of children, that we should love children, that we should help children, children in general, orphans in particular. But we shouldn't use this verse to do that because that's not what this verse means we should recognize that Jesus is not here putting children on a pedestal Jesus isn't saying that if you love children you're going to be eternally rewarded rather Jesus is saying that we should love his followers his children and when we do we're showing evidence of our faith so you remember the introduction right talked about a missionary putting Mark 9:37 to raise support for their, their work, their orphanage. What I'm saying here is that they should not do that. That's not what Jesus intended for it to mean. The second point of application has to do with unity. There is a kind of unity that Jesus has with the Father that he wants us to have with one another as his followers. In John 17, which we read earlier in the service, Jesus prays, I pray that they may be one, Father, even as we are one. I pray that they may be united, Father, even as we are united. He wants us to receive one another. Look at verse 50 real quick. All the way down to verse 50, which is the end of this kind of lesson that we're, we're not going to get there today. He says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. The opposite of peace is what we see John doing in verse 38. John saw someone who was doing the work of the kingdom outside of his little circle, outside of his little clique, and he tried to shut him down. He tried to stop the work of God in that person because he wasn't part of his little circle. That's not unity. Rather than receiving that brother in Jesus' name, he rejected him. Notice, brothers and sisters, that John is more sectarian than Jesus. As is often the case, the followers of a particular movement are more harsh and severe and sectarian than the founder of the movement itself. You know, a liberal leaning guy tends to produce very, very liberal followers. A conservative-leaning guy tends to produce overtly conservative followers. Jesus is certainly sectarian, but it seems like his disciples is more sectarian than he. Jesus is okay with more than one group of people working in his name. Not every follower of Jesus has to work arm in arm. It would be great if we could all do that, But here, just practically, you can see that it's not happening. Later in your Bibles, as you read Acts chapter 15, you're going to see Paul and Barnabas, right? These, this, you would think like the chain that couldn't be broken, you know, this father and son relationship. They split ways before a missionary journey over an argument about philosophy of ministry stuff. As you read the rest of the New Testament, you get clues that they ended up reconciling. But they weren't able to kind of work together for a time because of disagreements, some argue that denominations are from the devil. I'm sympathetic to that argument, although I don't agree with it. Nevertheless, here we see that Jesus is, in some sense, okay with groups of his followers working independently of each other. Right? He doesn't think everyone needs to be in the same place at the same time, doing the exact same thing in the exact same way. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that, at least in relation to one another, that we love one another we receive one another, that we're willing to serve one another. That's the reason why we can do evangelism with the PCA church down the street, even though we think they're dead wrong about baptism. That's the reason why we can do a pulpit swap with Point Mallard Baptist Church down the street, even though the odds of us ever coming together to form one church are pretty slim, we can still co-labor together. We can receive one another in love. We pray for other churches every single week in the life of this church. You heard it this morning. Our brother Russell Berger prayed for three gospel-preaching churches in this city this morning. We do so because we think in one sense, there's many reasons why we do it. One of the reasons is because we think it displays love and unity for other people who have been purchased by Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason, don't want to come here and worship with us. Maybe my preaching is long-winded. Maybe they don't like three prayers in one service. Maybe they think Grant doesn't know how to play a guitar. I don't know. Maybe it's a blue carpet. Whatever reason, they're not here with us this morning. That doesn't mean that we can't love them and support them and receive them. We pray for other churches because we believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and active outside of these four walls. To be clear, I think the Holy Spirit is alive and active within these four walls. But not these four walls only. We believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and active outside of our denomination. Denominations can be good and helpful and strategically they can be useful, but it's like a shell that we should be free to cast off at any moment in order to unite with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We think that praying for other churches is the opposite of John's sin in today's text. John says, they're not with us, so their work isn't valid. But when we pray for other churches, when we support other churches, when we love other churches, what we're saying is, Lord, we know that you are doing good things outside of Sixth Avenue. True unity, brothers and sisters, is gospel unity. Unity is a kind of a a word that people love to use these days, even though they don't really know what it means. The thing that unites us as Christians is not our political affiliations. There's certainly one party that I don't think I could ever be a member of. But being a Republican or a Libertarian or even a Democrat is not what unites us. Our skin color is not what unites us. By God's grace, it's pretty incredible. Our brother Chancellor is sick this morning. and you know, But I'm just amazed that as this tiny little church, we have some pretty great ethnic diversity. And I think it shows that the thing that binds us is not our skin color or our ethnic descent. We don't have unity only on secondary doctrinal matters or even our physical proximity to one another. The thing that unites us as believers is the fact that we've all been purchased by the blood of Jesus. The fact that the same Holy Spirit indwells all of us. It's the fact that we all believe, preach, and practice the same gospel. You know, Jesus never intended us to have a structural unity. Jesus never intended us to be one visible, universal church structure with a man or a group of men commanding it from a single headquarter. The charge that our Catholic friends lay at our feet is that we Protestants don't have unity because we're not part of the Catholic Church. But Jesus never intended us to be united in some kind of massive church structure. He intended us to be united in our faith. Jesus would be pleased To see 10 million independent churches who all preach, believe, and obey the same gospel infinitely more than he would like to see one visible church that preaches a false gospel. Such a thing would be abhorrent to him and is abhorrent to him. The latter only appears to have unity. All the priests wear the same garb. They all kind of read from the same book. They have the same leader. They have the same budget. But the former actually has true unity. It's unity in Jesus Christ, unity in the gospel. We all say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, under the authority of God's word alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what unites us. That's what matters most. But just because someone claims to follow Jesus, brothers and sisters, doesn't mean that they actually do. We shouldn't push followers of Jesus away like John does today. But we should be discerning and recognizing who is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you've lived in the Christian South long enough, you know that there are a bunch of people who say that they are Christians who in no way believe the gospel. There are some who are with us and there are some who are against us. That's what Jesus says. He says if they're not against us, they're for us, which implies that there are some against us. Some are against us in very harsh, obvious ways, and we're starting to feel that more and more in America. Cake bakers, wedding photographers. I had a man the other day just kind of lay into me because I was a Christian just out of nowhere. I don't think that would have happened 20 years ago. But there are some who are against us, who even claim to be with us, who claim to be for us. They claim the name of Jesus, but they they only use it for greedy gain or political power. They use the name of Jesus to advance their political or moral agenda, but they don't belong to Jesus. They're working actively against the gospel and what they teach about matters of human sexuality or the deity of Jesus Christ or any number of things. Such people should be rejected. doesn't mean they shouldn't be loved. But the way that we love them is to evangelize them, not to call them brother or sister. In today's text, Jesus isn't rebuking John for pushing away a wolf. He's rebuking John for his sectarian attitude that is the result of pride, who just, automatically assumes that this person who claims the name of Jesus isn't really a follower of Jesus. You see that in the language even that John uses. He says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Us, John? Us? How about he wasn't following you, Lord? John thinks that there's this club that he's a part of that nobody else can be a part of. And brothers and sisters, the American church is plagued by these same sorts of issues that we're reading about today. We too easily receive those who should not be received, and we too easily reject those who should not be rejected. A popular pastor votes Democrat in election, and then he tweets about it. And now, rather than assuming that perhaps he just made a poor political decision, we say that he's not even a Christian. We take a picture of throwing his books in the trash can and post it on social media. A missionary doing good gospel work asks for financial support, but because he's not a part of our denomination, we have nothing to offer him or her. Meanwhile, missionaries from our own denomination may be receiving support who are doing nothing in any way to advance the gospel and who may, in fact, be actively working against it. Receiving for the wrong reasons, rejecting for the wrong reasons. even though there are people who are against us, even amongst those who claim the name of Christ, we should still strive for generosity, not suspicion. We should be discerning, but be welcoming and warm. This is a danger that our church is going to have to deal with, brothers and sisters, because we care about theology. We think doctrine matters. We think that what you believe about God and man and sin and salvation, all of that really matters. And you know what happens? When you think that that stuff is important, you read, and you study, and you learn, and then usually you become prideful, and then you start rejecting people who don't understand salvation in the same way that you do, and you reject them outright. You forget the fact that not long ago, you yourselves needed to be discipled in such things. You forget that it's only by the grace of God that you happen to know the things that you know. You forget that you were once blind, and it was only because of the miracle working power of Christ that you now see. You know, you didn't go from ignorant to knowledgeable in your own will, by your own power. So we should be generous and welcoming and warm and discerning. Our attitude should be more like Jesus's than John's. A little side note, I love this little chunk right here in the book of Mark because it seems like Peter has just been getting laid into just time and time again. And now we finally get to see that John is also, you know, all the disciples are really failing to grasp the realities that Jesus is teaching them. Brothers and sisters, it's no light thing to reject a brother or sister in Christ. Strategically, it doesn't make much sense. Because Jesus says, hey, if they're not against us, they're for us. But such an attitude is also dangerous to our souls. Verse 42, we read, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and that word sin is scandalized, scandalisa, to sin. It could also mean to fall away. It could also mean whoever pushes one of these little ones away, which makes perfect sense in light of the context here, right? Whoever pushes one of these people who follow me, who claim the name of Jesus Christ, whoever causes one of these ones to move away from me, Jesus says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. To reject a brother or sister in Christ prematurely may be dangerous for our souls. Next week we'll read about those who push away the followers of Jesus Christ. And we'll see what the results are of another metaphor that Jesus uses. To be cast into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. As you can see, how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ or those who claim the name of Jesus, it's no trifling matter. To receive a child of God is to receive Jesus. And that brings you eternal reward, says Jesus in verse 41. To push away a child of God. To cause a child of God to move away from Jesus will bring bring eternal punishment, we see in verse 42. Brothers and sisters, we should let this reality lead us to examine our hearts. We should examine the way that we interact with those who claim the name of Jesus. We should look to root out any pride that may be building in our hearts Any pride that may lead us to claim Jesus for ourselves and us alone, our church and our church alone, our denomination and our denomination alone. It's only by his sovereign mercy that we are his disciples in the first place. You weren't out in the world looking for Jesus. You weren't thinking, man, it sure would be nice to pick up my cross and lay down my life and be the servant of all and be last of all. You were pursuing sin. You were pursuing your own comfort. You were pursuing the world. And then Jesus, by the sovereign power of his might, came and snatched you out of the fire. He came and pulled you off of the road, leading you to hell, and he brought you back on the road that takes you to heaven. Your God was Satan, and he said, I will be your God, and you will be my child. How can we in any way, then, feel it to be at all appropriate to push other people away from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Can't you see how that would merit wrath and punishment from God? Jesus says, by this, speaking of our love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. When we mistreat or push away, or do not welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are preaching a false gospel to the world with our actions. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that sometimes brothers and sisters treat each other poorly. And when they do, the parent reprimands and punishes and sometimes threatens. But it's all for the sake of reconciliation. If you do not belong to Jesus, you're like the family friend who's sitting there awkwardly in the living room while the family has an argument, has to hash it out. But I hope you notice something today. The way that we love each other in the family of God is by telling each other the truth. We warn each other, we rebuke each other, we encourage one another, and then we forgive one another. And when we tell each other the truth at our best, It's to build each other up. Not to prove a point or to tear each other down. Everyone in this room should hear this truth. If we do not belong to Christ, we are in very great danger. The likes of which that we cannot even begin to imagine right now. If you don't know what I mean by that when I speak of danger, We'll be talking about that for over an hour next week. So join me next week as we continue to dig into Mark chapter 9. Let me pray. Father, you know our hearts. We're prone to selfishness, to greed, to be self-centered and focused on anything and everything other than the things that we should be focused on. We confess that, but we also recognize that you've given us your Spirit. So empower us, Lord, to love and to receive and to welcome our brothers and sisters in faith and to do so in a way that is warm, welcoming, and discerning. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Please stand with me.